0: Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm Christian Kuhn, author of the book Failing Boldly and co-founder of Urban Village Church in Chicago. My guest this week is author and activist Shane Claiborne. Shane has been one of the most notable Christian social justice advocates for the last two decades and is the author of several books, including his first, The Irresistible Revolution, and his latest, Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. We talked about how he's adjusting to living during this pandemic, the span of his career, and why he still has hope. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, Shane Claiborne, thank you so much for being on the Feeling Boldly podcast.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me.
0: I don't normally start podcasts like this, but uh, considering everything that everyone is going through, I think it makes sense for me to ask just, how are you doing (laughs) in the midst of everything?
1: my soul as well. We're doing good out here in Philly. We're, um, you know, I've been having a community here on the North side of Philadelphia for over 20 years, about 22, 23 years. So I'm looking across the street where the, the, the hub of everything is. And, uh, my friends are giving out food and they've got, um, tape lines for six oh, really? feet apart. So, have to you know need to stand six feet apart but we're one of the only agencies uh, or one of the few that are still giving out food through the uh COVID-19 thing happening so like um almost 100 agencies had closed down it sounded like partly because they have seniors that are volunteering and things like that so we're just trying to keep it going man trying to uh you know get outside and keep six feet apart be do the distance, but not the isolation thing. You know, kind of be present when we can on our block together. And you know, life goes on. We had a friend that passed away, and you know, mm. you think of what what does a funeral look like right now? It's a it's a strange time, but I think it's also a time for a lot of creativity. You know, I did a, a like a uh, I don't know some kind of virtual revival last night with my. Oh yeah. Partner vote common good you know it was awesome tonight there's like this desert monasticism uh three hour journey through the spirituality of the you know the desert fathers and mothers that's online so that's kind of some cool stuff happening so we're hanging in there man and katie and i we've been learning blacksmithing so this is like perfect time for us we've been turning guns into garden tools you know and uh so i've got this this whole basement full of uh chopped up guns i've got an arsenal of uh in- inoperative uh, guns in the basement that will be blacksmithing so we're having a good time man i mean yeah, you know yeah. I'm, we're feeling it for folks that are you know particularly vulnerable folks in prison folks that are you know victims of domestic violence you know people we just kind of think of that could easily get lost in all this so we're trying to be present trying to do what we can man
0: I was about ready to ask you that. I think in times like this, it's on the one hand, it's understandable. A lot of people think inward. I need to protect myself. I need to protect my family. Uh, and they kind of shut themselves off from the world. But you don't have to read a whole lot to know that the marginalized are the most vulnerable in times like this. And so I guess what message have you been giving and showing with the simple way still giving out food too, to make sure that we're paying attention to those that might be forgotten in times like this?
1: Well, this is particularly tricky too, right? It, it's it's right. sort of, it, it's, it's like, it's not like a, a natural disaster where you just know you got to go full on and just, uh, you know, take care of the folks that, you know, have really been hit the hardest and things like that. I mean, this is much trickier, you know? Um, so, I mean, for instance, you can't even go into prisons right now, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, and so, and there's a lot of, you know, I think wisdom to that. They're not wanting to get a, you know, contagion going on inside the prisons if, if we can help it. So, yeah, I think we're, we're doing as much as we can to, to be, you know, creative, to write letters to folks. There's some prisons that don't allow letters. Some that do, there's uh, ways that we're trying to be as present as we can with folks on the street, you know, cause you, how do you get quarantined if you don't have a home, you know? And yeah. um, so there's, that's a lot of folks in our neighborhood here. So, um, and you think about recovery communities, we've got, you know, we, we've got a really deep connection and history with uh, folks recovering. And part of what makes that so vital is uh, being able to have face-to-face groups, you know, meetings like AA and 12 Steps and stuff. And so, um, uh, yeah, a lot of that's, we, we just got to do what we can, I think, to, to um, um, be imaginative and to um, be I think the danger is to, to live in fear and to live in isolation. You know, I think there, there's this kind of fine line that we're finding between um, uh, wisdom and courage, you know, so not to be fearful, but also not to be careless like some of the folks we see in the news. Are, <laughs> we're just going to do our work. God's going to protect us. We're going to worship on Sunday. Come hell or high or water, you know, so... I, bad ideas and whatnot you know so i think you know being people of prayer being grounded but also like using wisdom doing what we can so no no no, uh magic anecdotes man but i do see god working in the cracks though and Mm -hmm. you know like two days ago colorado abolished the death penalty um my understanding is probably all executions are going to go on hold because you know you can't have the proper appeals and folks can't meet with their lawyers and go to court and stuff and so you know, I really do think God often works in the cracks and the Mm. the good and the bad's all kind of going together. So it's likely that this year will be the lowest uh, executions we've had in modern history, which is great, but you know, we're having a lot of folks that are struggling in other ways. So yeah, man, uh, do what we can to pray that God would give us eyes to see the folks that are, that are, uh, most vulnerable right now. And, um, there's a lot of a lot of people doing cool stuff, though, you know, um, folks that um, I mean, there's some folks that are in the medical I'm mean, just so grateful for the folks that, you know, they're choosing to go to work every day to take care of people and, um, and folks that are, you know, doing meals on wheels needed mm-hmm. a whole bunch of uh, volunteers. So we're just trying to connect people however we can, man. And also mobilize like we're in the middle of like, one of the most important elections. In American history, so like, uh, if nothing else, we can do a whole lot of organizing while we're quarantined up in here and try to get a, uh, you know, better thing happening for our country here.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about all of those things in a minute. Uh, I want to first, if it's okay, kind of back up a little bit with your own faith journey. One of the things, I mean, in your in the book that I put on Facebook uh, yesterday, that I was going to be talking to you and asked what would you want me to ask you, and so many people keep referring back to Irresistible Revolution, and in that. You talk a little bit about your faith story, but it seems like one of the key moments for you was when some friends asked you to come down to Philadelphia and essentially hang out with uh, those who are poor. And I know in, maybe in your traditions and in many traditions, people talk about being saved, whatever that means for them. Would you say that those moments for you, those first days in Philadelphia, was in a sense kind of one of your most uh, salvific experiences?
1: Well, I've always liked that scripture that says, uh, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, you know, Mm -hmm. and I've I've come to see that this whole, um, Christian thing is not just about a moment, but it's about a movement. And I think we do have those pivotal, you know, kind of landmark moments where we put a stake in the ground and say, I'm committing my life to Jesus, you know, and a lot of us have those even radical, you know, conversions from who we were to who we, we want to be, um. But for me, it's been that kind of process. So, because I got, I, I fell in love with Jesus when I was in middle school, you know, and um, I grew up in the uh, Bible Belt in Tennessee, actually in the Methodist Church, and then I got kind of disenchanted with the, um, the formality and things like that. I just wanted to see the fire of the Holy Spirit, you know, and so I, I really got. Um, immersed in the charismatic a charismatic church in um in my hometown in Tennessee, and that opened my eyes up to lots of things people who believed in miracles people who prayed for healing and I mean like i, I just loved it and still love it a lot of that's shaped who I am, you know and there's some of the bones I had to spit out with it too, you know, like I think there were some pieces that um in any tradition there's parts that we uh, are yet to be redeemed, I guess you know or or like as the scripture says, we see through a glass dimly, so Um, But I love the charismatic side of that. So that infected me in some ways. And then when I came to Philly, I came really to go to college here. I went to Eastern University, you know, studying sociology with folks like Tony Campolo and other wonderful profs there. But it was when my college friends started taking me downtown. They went down often, like um, sometimes even a few nights a week and um, about a 30 minute, you know, commute to, to downtown. So But we'd go at night, you know, we, and they introduced me to folks that were living under bridges that were, you know, uh, sleeping in the parks and we'd stay up sometimes two or three in the morning, just listening to people's stories, talking with them, sharing hot chocolate or food or whatever, you know? And, um, I mean, that was just, it was massive. I mean, it was like the Bible became 3d, you know, all these Mm -hmm. things Jesus said about, um, the last being first and, um, the tax collectors and prostitutes entering the kingdom ahead of the uh, uh, the religious folks you know all this stuff I was like kind of seeing it you know you read the rich man and Lazarus story with new eyes after you've kind of met folks that are sleeping outside someone's gated community you know and um, uh, but then you know while we were in college was there was a you know one really catalytic experience which was a group of homeless mothers and children had moved into mm. a uh, abandoned Catholic Church, and I talk about that in my first book quite a bit because that was, you know, the, it was one thing to I think experience um, folks that were on the street downtown, but then to see that the fastest growing homeless population was and still is women and children. Um, we we often have the least amount of shelter space or public housing for for families with kids and mo- mothers, and so. Um, these moms were courageous and they, they said we refuse to be invisible and we need to band together because on our own, we're really vulnerable. And so they exposed this by, you know, about a hundred of them moving into this abandoned church. And we um, heard about it and mobilized a student movement really uh, that came alongside of them. And um, uh, you know, that, that was incredible. I've never been the same since, you know, and it was, kind of my second baptism into justice, social justice and things like that. But it was also, um, you know, when, when I, we, the, the, families that hung a banner that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Hmm. So it was really, uh, informed how I think of Jesus, not just as someone who came to do charitable work and help the poor, but was born as a baby refugee, uh, you know, who, who, was executed by the state uh, on the, on the cross. Well, you know, every part of his life was this kind of movement of divine solidarity with people who are suffering in the world and, and embodying that and who God is in Jesus. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was huge. We started reading about the early church, you know, and how they shared everything together. And that that's a lot of where our vision for the simple way was born. That was back in the late '90s, but we've we've been at it ever since.
0: Yeah, you talk about it. Sounds like a little bit of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as you think about where you were when you wrote Irresistible Revolution, and today, what are a couple of ways uh, if you have changed or have have, have um, um, reformed maybe uh, over that time?
1: Since I wrote my first book. Right. It's right. really interesting. Somebody else had this idea. Someone at the Zondervan, at the publisher, which was on the 10-year anniversary, let's release a new edition where I could actually go through and write some scrap right. notes, you know, in the more margins and finish stories that were kind of incomplete when I'd written. there said, "This is what ended up happening." Or you know, with Iraq, I told about going there the first time, but I got to go back to Iraq and visit these doctors that you know saved our lives when we had a car crash and you know during the war. So I mean, it's just so it was. It's really interesting to uh go back you know ten years later now it's you know almost twenty years later that we're looking back at and, and thinking wow these are some things I would do a little different or say different um but there's a whole lot that's um i mean uh, we, when I was when I, we came up with the title of the irresistible revolution um it, you know the, these titles get <laughs> go through all kinds of changes but we I really felt like there is this sort of bubbling up, just like boiling water, like it's starting, like there's something happening within the church, but also within the uh, the larger cultural uh, culture, in the, this sense that the world that we've been handed is really fragile, and young people um, are rising up, and we, we were a part of that in our 20s, you know, but we're still, like, seeing that, you know, and we're seeing it even more evident, I think, in the environmental crisis around uh, Black Lives Matter and gun violence, the kids, you know, from uh, Florida that are now adults, you know, but all the, all that, this like movement, um, that's happening. And, um, so, you know, when I went back and read what I'd written about racial justice and stuff like that, like it was kind of controversial when I wrote it 15 years ago, you know, <laughs> I guess some of it still is, but, um, I'm, I'm just grateful for what, what's happening in the world. And I'm convinced that a lot of people are leaving the church, um, because it's lost touch with mm-hmm. that sort of uh, um, crisis that's happening in the world that I, I think just one more iteration of it is this coronavirus but you know where we kind of are asking questions of like what's more important people or the stock exchange you know <laughs> I can't believe it you know but like these are things that like these are ancient struggles so there's there's a lot of wisdom we can build on and Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, pumped to be alive right now. I think it's an amazing moment in history. I also think it's a, it's a really important moment for us to realize that um, Christians who are forfeiting their integrity and moral Mm -hmm. authority to defend Donald Trump are doing so much damage um, to the reputation of, of. of Christianity in public. So we, we really, I I think there's a movement that wants a different version of that and red letter Christians, you know, the work that I'm doing now, that's kind of what we're about is trying to change that narrative of um, what Christians care about and challenge uh, the Trump evangelicalism because there's a lot of, a lot of folks that, you know, they say they're rejecting Christianity, but really they're just rejecting a version of American nationalism that has camouflaged itself as Christianity, but it really doesn't look much like Christ at all. So, you know, when Frederick Douglass said, I see no reason to call the religion of this land Christianity, it looks nothing like Christ. (laughs) I think a lot of people are seeing that, you know.
0: Would you, so this is a podcast about failure, and so would you say, you mentioned a little bit about kind of, and I'm painting in broad brushes here, but some of the failures, contemporary failures of both the conservative evangelical church and also the mainline church. And so for you, in talking first about the conservative evangelicals, would you say it's alignment with with Trump and what Trump stands for is one of those failures, or are there others too?
1: Um, I, I think that, first of all, I think that Trump is a symptom of something much deeper, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that's going to be with us. I mean, Trump may be gone this year, but the, what what led to Trump is still, you know, underneath the surface. And so, you know, we've, we've been saying Trump didn't, uh, change America. He revealed America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same is true of, of white evangelicalism in particular is that Trump didn't change it. He just surfaced it and revealed it. And what we're seeing is really, really troubling, you know, um, yeah. So we can, we can talk more about that, but I, I think, you know, my friend Tony Campolo, he he says, uh, when you mixing faith with a political party is kind of like mixing, uh, manure and ice cream. Uh, right. it doesn't do much damage to the manure, but it really messes up the ice cream. Yeah. So I think mi- mixing full on with any political party is, is a real dangerous thing, but these, this is weird. These are weird times because the, um, while I'm not partisan at all, um, I am deeply concerned about the, the, um, the, the kind of, um, culture wars that are happening. And I think just the, the disintegration of the Republican party, you know, I, I think there's a lot, to, there's entire States where conservatives like in Colorado are leading the way, um, to the end of the death penalty. And so there's some good things that are happening. Um, but boy, it's it's a challenging time, uh, especially for those who might want to call themselves conservatives or Republicans. You know, I, I've I've always liked how Chesterton said, "If I'm too liberal for the conservatives and too conservative for the liberals, I may might be where, right where I'm supposed to be." But I yeah. think the other thing that I for is, is the the this um that self righteousness is, is not partisan and and there there's a toxicity to it. Um, uh, th- this idea of, of of kind of like um, this moral sort of self-righteousness and pointing fingers and saying thank you that we're not like those people and I saw the conservative side of that but you know nowadays I've certainly become very familiar uh, with the progressive you know uh, version of self-righteousness that can be also very um very toxic and very just, just kind of squashing people from be, being able to um, change and be mm. open to new ideas, you know. Part of why I have a little bit of patience and grace is because I look in the mirror and I see who I've been and who I'm becoming, and there's this process, you know, and on a lot of the things I feel so passionately about like the death penalty and gun violence um in particular like I've been on the other side of those issues you know <laughs> I've, I've always I sometimes say I've always been passionate even when I've been wrong but I'm you know <laughs> I'm always passionate um but um so you know I, I I met a guy the other day who said man I gotta tell you I'm a redneck you know um he's, it was down in Texas I think and he said uh, uh, but I've been reading your books. You got me reading my Bible. He said, and it's, it's messed, messed me up. And he said, I wanted to see if you'd pray with me because I see myself as a recovering redneck. Um, <laughs> and I think, man, if we, if we don't have room for folks to change and we don't have room for anybody, you know, cause all of us are sort of, uh, you know, different than we were maybe 10 years ago.
0: Would you say then too, when you look at uh, the, the mainline or more progressive, churches in thinking about any kind of contemporary failures on their part, would you say you mentioned self-righteousness? Is there anything else that you, um, see that they're not quite getting right?
1: Well, I, I, I often, um, say that, that our faith spe- spreads best, not by force, but by fascination. Hmm. And I, I, I think that a lot of the church has become less and less fascinating, um, hmm. to the world. Like our, our faith is, um, kind of been reduced to um a doctrinal statement or a sunday morning service and um that just seems uh it's hard to um for that to be the compelling force that you know causes people to join you know like you don't read a doctrinal statement be like wow this is amazing sign me (laughs) up you know but i think you know jesus said they'll know that we are christians by our love and I, i think love has to be public love needs to be um contagious and it needs to be seen as a force against injustice in the world. And there are times I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to confine people to, 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 you know, with, with a broad brush too much, but because there's a lot of creativity I've seen in the mainline church, but I think there's also a lot of um, kind of fragility and, and um, self maintaining and things like that. You know, I, I just was over in, um, London with Justin Welby, you know, head of the Anglican church. And um, there's a lot of imagination there, but there's also some kind of old wineskins that we're dealing with. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a kind of, a, you know, it's a challenging time, I think, for for anybody.
0: It's interesting when you talk about being less and less fascinating. I had Barbara Brown Taylor was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she said almost the exact same thing, that she mm-hmm. she's concerned that the church is becoming too boring. Oh, yeah. uh, and so it's uh, it's interesting that you also kind of lift that up.
1: Yeah. And, and young people are daring. I mean, they got, they got, I mean, even my friends that are neuroscientists and stuff, you know, what's going on in your brain. You want something to live for. I think it's why the the Christian movement around Jesus was a youth movement. I mean, Jesus died when he was 33 years old. You know, he, he never got to the reading Richard Rohr's second half of life or whatever, you know? (laughs) So I think like there's a movement happening in the world that wants to live for, for something. They want to transform the world. and, and, you know, the, the church is is um, sometimes a place that squashes dreams rather than mm. stirs them up. Uh, and, and and I'm convinced that part of why young people are leaving the church isn't because we've made it, you know, Christianity too hard, but because we've made it too easy. Mm. Um, and it's groups like, um, you know, Tracy Blackman and Ferguson that rose up, you know, when Michael Brown was killed and Reverend uh, Barber down in North Carolina that we team up with all the time that are showing Christianity as, as a movement. Um, uh, And, 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 um, you know, I think there's a lot of other iterations of that Christian peacemaker teams and preemptive love that are going to the centers of conflict and saying, do we believe in the cross as much as we believe in the sword as other people believe in the sword? Like, is the cross really an alternative? Does love our enemies? um, Are we willing to die for that? You know, as much as we're willing to die for uh, America's next war.
0: Yeah. You mentioned earlier the death penalty and the last couple of books that you've written have focused on, and you mentioned this too, gun control and, and the death penalty. What is it about those two issues that really stirred you to, to really focus uh, on them?
1: Well, there's, there's a couple of things there's, uh, first of all, I, I'm not a really a single issue person. I'm, I'm not really even an issue person. I, you know, I'm trying to be a champion of life in a really holistic way. Um, and and but that's what I began to find you know so interesting and so troubling is I grew up you know hearing every Christian talking about being pro-life, but we've come to so narrowly focus that to one issue to abortion that we'd be more accurate in saying we're anti-abortion or we're pro-birth, you know, but to be pro-life to me became much broader than that. I do care about abortion, reducing and eradicating abortion, but it's not the only life issue. I I think the environmental crisis is a life issue. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, immigration, uh, and, and particularly these two issues, the death penalty and gun violence caught me because for a few reasons. One of them is that rather than being the champions of life, Christians have been the obstacles of life on these. Like we've, we've been on the wrong side of this, like the highest gun owning demographic in America is white evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. We own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And we've been the champions of guns, you know, like down, I grew up with, you know, God and guns, you know, hand in hand. And, and, and then on the death penalty, the death penalty would not stand a chance in America. If it weren't for Christians, um, the, the, the death penalty has, has held on not in spite of Christians, but because of us. And even if you look at who's, who's executing, it's the Bible belt. 85% of executions are happening in the Bible belt. And that blows. I mean, it, it just sickened my stomach, you know, as I began to, to kind of take away the layers of this. I mean, Tennessee, where I grew up is using the electric chair still like this year, Is executing people along with Texas, you know, these in these southern states that were also the states that held on to slavery the longest. So there's certainly the residue of racism and slavery there as well but you know the 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 theological foundation and justification for guns and the death penalty is is incredibly uh problematic and i think it surfaces a lot of other things too you know so that's why like it these it is about the death penalty beating guns is about guns but um uh, it's about a lot more than that too i think it's even about how we understand why jesus died you know because there's some versions of um thinking about jesus 's death that make God pretty monstrous, you know that God has a gun pointed at humanity
0: mm. and
1: takes it off of us and puts it on jesus and and kills jesus and so if we aren 't careful, I think um we can create some theology that is very very dangerous and 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 we have that I think we have that in our country um and and but that 's you know Hitler came to power with the Bible in his hand using really deranged theology as, as one of my mentors said, all you got to do is twist the cross and you get a swastika. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, to this day, the KKK has an entire section of their website defending why they're Christians. And, you know, I mean, it's just, so, so I think we've got to challenge that theology. Um, You know, the, the answer to bad theology is not no theology, but it's, it's good theology. So, um, I, I want to kind of challenge the kind of theology that says we're going to worship the Prince of Peace on Sunday and pack heat on Monday. You
0: know? yeah. Well, you mentioned in the in Beating Guns that you said that Christians should concede that the Bible is a higher moral authority than the Constitution and that the golden rule is a greater commandment than the Second Amendment. Do you have any hope uh, that we can get to that place uh, where people are seeing the Bible and the the Great Commandment as higher authorities.
1: Absolutely, and there's there's a couple of things that give me hope, and that's another reason that I am drawn to to write a book about the death penalty and about gun violence. Is I actually believe we're going to be a generation that sees massive changes mm-hmm. on these these things. Um, I think we could eliminate the death penalty um, within the next five or 10 years, you know, Colorado, uh, almost every year a new state um, uh, eradicates the death penalty, you know, abolishes the death penalty. But with the gun violence too, I am very hopeful. I mean, there's a whole generation that's rising up that um, can't make sense of, of assault weapons on our streets or the fact that we, even even outside of policies, that we don't have like technology um, progress on this. Like we, we have everything we need to do smart gun technology to where a gun would only be able to operate off of a fingerprint or by the, the owner of that, that weapon. So if a stolen gun or a gun found in the house by a kid, wouldn't be able to operate, there's things like that, that we, you know, I think there's, there's all kinds of things that we can do. Um, uh, but here's the other thing that gives me a lot of hope is that, um, even when the NRA like says we have 5 million members, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, what we need to also hear is that that means 95% of gun owners are not a part of the NRA. And we've got a whole section of beating guns that's about gun owners are not the problem. Mm-hmm. And we just differentiate between gun owners and gun extremists. And I think there are a small group of extremists that are stockpiling weapons and as if we're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, you know, and they're ready to take on the National Guard or the Marines if they have to, you know. And so there are some extremists. But here's a statistic that I found really interesting is this is just recently, I think even since we wrote Beating Guns, um, over 60 percent of gun owners find themselves at odds with the uncompromising ideology of the NRA. 62% of gun owners. So, the, you know, 80% of, of gun owners want to see some changes like, you know, universal background checks and things like that. So I think there's when people are using the language common sense, you know, gun legislation, I think that's what we're talking about is um, even in Virginia, one of the laws that people were all up in arms about was literally was that uh, a handgun limit to 12 handguns a, a year per person This is handguns. So it was a one a month, one handgun a month bill that would say, like, you you know, one person has a right to buy one handgun per month, per, you you know, so 12 handguns in a year. And you're going, like, who needs more than 12 handguns in a year? Well, someone that's (laughs) selling handguns or doing something crazy, you know? So that's the stuff where I think we need it. We need a better conversation. And that was our hope with beating guns and with, you know, executing grace was to create some common ground and, to uh, um, have a better conversation on on gun violence and the death penalty.
0: Yeah, I mentioned earlier that I put on on Facebook that I'd be talking to you and ask people what would they want to talk to you about. Uh, I'm the pastor of an LGBTQ affirming church, and so I wasn't surprised that a lot of people wanted uh, people who have loved you and loved your books and wanted some clarification about things that you've said in the past. And so um, here's the question and asking you to kind of reflect on uh, where you are on that issue and um, uh, and the and the I know I've heard in other interviews that you have LGBTQ friends, and so um, how how do you respond to all that?
1: Well, this is what I, I think I've felt so uh, you know in the, as the fire in my bones for 20 years since I've been speaking and writing is that we need to be able to say some things. All anyone who calls himself a Christian should be able to say some things without any apology or qualification, things like every single person is made in the image of God and has infinite value is beloved. And, um, we need to be known for love, uh, for, for, and and the, the fact is that we haven't been, um, I I often cite the Barna research that asked young non-Christians, what they think of when they hear the word Christian and the number one answer is anti-gay. Um, number two was judgmental. Number three was hypocritical. I mean, that's those are not good things. Like people didn't encounter Jesus and walk away scratching their head going, why doesn't he like gay folks? Like we've become known for the very things that Jesus stood against, like self-righteousness. And we've excluded the very people that were just magnetized to Jesus. So I think we've got to start with a deep, lament and confession that we've gotten this wrong. Um, and when, you know, what also struck me as I read this Barner research is what didn't register on the polls and what didn't even register was the, the thing that Jesus said, they will know you're Christians by, which is love. And, and so, um, for me, I think some of this is because we turn this into an issue that we are debating rather than thinking about the people who are directly affected by it. And I think that's what we do often with any issue like when well, we we're just talking about gun violence and the death penalty. We don't always think we're good at talking about people, but not talking with them. And I think love requires more of us than that. And for me, a real powerful moment for me was when I was in college and I had a friend of mine who told me he was gay and he grew up in the church. And he, I mean, just began to break down because he said, I've gone on the retreats and tried to pray away the gay, you know, I've done all that. I've had demons cast out of me, like whatever, you know? And he's like, at the end of the day, I'm attracted to dudes. And like, I feel like what the church has given me is is a sense that God made a mistake when God made me. And then he just, he started weeping, you know? And um, I can remember that like it was yesterday. And what I remember is, is thinking, if my friend can't find a home in the church, then, then who have we become? You know, what have we become? And, and so that, that's kind of, that was a moment that really shook me. And I've, I've, you know, written about this in various forms um, you know, and spoken about it really passionately as, as far as I think we, we need um, to be affirming and inclusive. We also need to be uh, better listeners. And, and um, and the one thing that folks will sort of push on a little bit is um is do do we need this to be sort of a line in the sand or a litmus test of? Because um, there are there are uh, folks that have made same sex marriage the litmus test, right? So like I I am, I uh, speak at churches. I'm involved with organizations who disagree on this, and I like the Methodist church that I grew up in. I think just had an epic fail. And they've excluded the affirming congregations. Um, But there are other organizations I work with that I think they're failing on the other side, where um, if you are, if you don't have a public statement affirming same-sex marriage, then you're not welcome um, there, which I think, I just think that that's, more exclusion is not the answer. I mean, the Pope couldn't speak at some of these places, or you know, Brian Stevenson or Helen Prajon couldn't talk about the death penalty if they didn't have a statement on marriage. So I just think that it's not the best thing to say. Just because we believe in intersectional justice and full liberation, we all have to see eye to eye on um, on all of these things. But I do think that we have to say if we cannot begin with uh, love and, and celebrating our LGBT brothers and sisters, then we, we're missing the mark. And this is the other thing, is I think we also have to be able to say, we are gonna advocate for LGBTQ rights in the public sphere um, because even if we disagree on the sacrament of marriage, like the role of the government is to protect people from discrimination and bigotry Um, and you know, LGBTQ folks overwhelmingly are, are a target for so much hatred and and discrimination. And so we need to unilaterally, um, advocate for LGBTQ rights, no matter how we might disagree on the sacrament of marriage. And this is why I think the conversation about the sacrament of marriage is complicated because there's six verses of scripture that talk about same sex attraction. And I think that the context that they were written in, Um, was one of exploitation and abuse and very different from our contemporary idea of a monogamous, equitable, same-sex partnership for life, right? And so um, I think that that Christians can come to different conclusions on that. And this is why I really see it as a pastoral issue um, that, with any marriage, you know, I, whether it's a, a same gendered couple or uh, a, a heterosexual couple, I think it that the, the, the sacrament of marriage is something that we, we discern, that pastors discern as they marry folks. So I was just with a church that literally the pastoral staff doesn't all agree. So they're exploring, you know, can um, one pastor marry same sex couples and another, you know, not do that on principle. They're having a deep, hard conversation on that. So I I think this is a a hard thing that churches denominations are splitting over. And I would like to see us be able to hold some tension on that because I think it is possible for Jesus-loving, Bible-loving Christians to arrive in different places on the sacrament of marriage um, and, and certainly being in a lot of Catholic circles and, uh, you know, a lot of other circles I, in, as I go internationally, you know, even the, the, pro, the LGBTQ letters are kind of English based. And the conversation is much more complex, I think, as we get out of a English speaking U.S. context. So I think we need a lot of grace, but that doesn't take anything away from our uh, passion um, and unapologetic pursuit of love and dignity. And just one more thing on this, Chris, I think because it's so important to me is is that um, sometimes we end up talking just about sex and we lose uh, the conversation about love. And I I think that one of the things that being mentored by a lot of Catholic folks who, you know, have committed to celibacy for their life um, as monks and friars and stuff is is they've taught me that you can you can. You can live without sex but you can't live without love and there are a lot of folks who have tons of sex but they don't feel loved um and there are other folks that you know don't have sex but they feel love really deeply and that's where i think we really got to concentrate is how can we be communities where people can love and be loved um and um and that's where we arrived within our larger movement of communities is um, we, we had some really hard conversations on this because we have communities that feel real strongly one way or the other. Our, our community at The Simple Way has always held attention. We've had folks that identify as LGBTQ from the beginning of our community. So we, we've kind of worked it out. But there's other communities that are you know in different places. And what we were able to say is that we uh, support uh, celibate singles and monogamous married couples and their children. And folks kind of sometimes will scratch their head and go, well, that leaves room for people to interpret marriage differently. And we go, yeah. And I think that's, that's also what uh, we need to do in some denominations and is to allow folks to um, pastorally walk alongside people. And I think a tree is known by its fruit, you know, and I, I trust pastors to, you know, discern the sacrament of marriage for where where they are. And um, so that's, that's kind of where, where I'm, you know, add on it. doing a lot of listening to other folks. I just did a uh, podcast with Dr. Robin that'll uh be out. And Lisa Sharon Harper who's been on your show, we did a like three person conversation that's not out yet. But um yeah, so I'm I'm doing a lot of, of uh listening and 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 coming alongside of different communities as they're discerning that. And I, I guess my big, biggest role that I see myself serving is trying to be a bridge builder and creating a, a better conversation between people who are pretty polarized. So I'm, I'm still kind of leaning into schools, churches, organizations that um, kind of are polarized on it.
0: Yeah. So I guess I have to ask then for you personally when it comes to both how you interpret the sacrament of marriage and as it relates to same sex couples. How about you? How do you personally uh, give your own view on that?
1: Yeah. Well, it's not something that I am faced with because I'm not ordained and I don't have, um, the privilege of, of performing marriages and, um, um, but like I said, I, I have friends that are pastors that do marriages and they, um, they're, they're, some of them are marrying folks that are have the same sex and some are not, you know, and, um, I, um, I, so it's not something that I'm faced with personally, as far as like, whether I'd perform a marriage and I think I'd probably just uh I mean it did come up you know we have some public space here and uh someone said could we use the park to do a marriage and it you know kind of raised some of these questions and it, to me this is not about the 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 gender as much as it's about that the this this covenant so I I mean like I I wouldn't feel good about using our park for a heterosexual couple if we knew it was an abusive relationship and i'd feel perfectly fine about using it for a marriage of folks that have the same gender you know if they're they've got this sort of pastoral uh um uh you know person walking with them and doing performing that marriage you know it's not a problem at all to me yeah
0: mm-hmm. um one of the, I've got some some folks asked about uh, they sometimes are overwhelmed there's so much to do in the world, and they don't know where to start. And one of the quotes that uh, I'm going back again to irresistible revolution that you said that I appreciated was when you said today the church is tempted by the spectacular to do big miraculous things so people might believe so that people might believe. but Jesus has called us to littleness and compares our revolution to the little mustard seed to yeast making its way through dough. So do you still, I guess, would, is that be, be advice you give today for those who are like, I want to do something, but I don't know where to start. Uh, and so is that advice you still give people today, like start small?
1: Well, you know, I, I uh, yeah, I, I've been a student from a distance of Dorothy Day, you know, in the Catholic worker movement. And one of the things that she said that prompted this is she said, uh, our, our job's not to get bigger and bigger, but smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can if we can live the gospel out of our homes and dinner tables and in our neighborhood, manifest the kingdom of God. Like that's how it happens. And I do see those images of Jesus, like the mustard seed was like an invasive plant. You know, it wasn't a giant cedar of Lebanon. It was actually kind of more like a uh, kudzu or like a you know, it kind of took over the garden. So I think like the images of light and leaven and and all of those are really these beautiful. Um, almost invisible, subtle contagions of love and grace in the world. So it, Mother Teresa's uh, wonderful line that, you know, we can do no great things, but we're to do small things with great love has been really our heartbeat because what's important to us is not um, how many bags of food we give out, but how much love people feel as they're, they're getting them, you know, and I think the the real transformative work is, is, ultimately relational. And it's, it's, um, it's what Jesus did. I mean, lived his life in, in people's homes. He's living in the middle of interruptions and somebody ran out of wine at their wedding and our kid's sick over here, you know, he's, he's just kind of living in that space. Um, now, having said that, I do think that there is a place for, um, as Dr. King said, the church to be the pr- prophetic conscience of our our nation, um, that we're not to be the servant or the master of the state, but the conscience of the state. And I think that there is an, a really important place for that prophetic conscience to manifest itself today. So I, I think of courageous acts like Bree Newsom taking down the Confederate flag, you know, or uh, Colin Kaepernick, you know, kneeling during the national anthem, or, you know, many, many stories, Rosa Parks, you know, back in the day on the bus, like all of these are like incredible. Um, they are in in one sense, they're, they're small acts. I mean, there's tons of other Confederate flags, you know, there's like Rosa Parks was one person on a bus, but man, she, her, her sitting down caused a lot of people to stand up, you know, and same with Colin. I I think there's a lot of uh, courage is contagious. And so when we see those little acts of courage, they embolden other people. And I think that's, um, that's how a lot of movements have started, you know, by someone um, just saying, I, you know, I can't in good conscience do this. And, and, you know, that little match is sparks of mm. fire.
0: Yeah. How do I'm always impressed with people and certainly with you and the energy that you have, but I also imagine like every day, you're both having people sing your praises and others who wish you would just go away forever. How do you keep going? Like, what are the things that give you life spiritual practices that give you life? And um, so that you're able to show that resilience.
1: Wow. Such a, such a, uh, deep and profound question. Uh, I I love it. I mean, uh, there's some stuff that's just like, um, we, we, we have this common prayer book that we created, you know, um, and we being a, a huge group of friends that, um, folks like Phyllis Tickle and, uh, the late Richard twist. I mean, both of them have passed on now, but also, you know, um, Catholic friends like Richard Rohr helped us and, um, uh, we had people that were in the charismatic church mennonite orthodox um and uh, um that and so we crafted this common prayer um it's also on on the digital devices it's on a free app you know and all that but that's like a part of um my own sort of prayer life. And it came out of that hunger, you know, to find ways to pray together across, you know, diverse differences in in kind of worship styles and theologies and stuff. And um, it was funny because when I was over with uh, Justin in in, uh, Lambeth Palace, I gave him a book of Uh, our, our version of common prayer. And we laughed because he had just showed me the table where um, the original (laughs) book of common prayer was written in the 1500s. So, (laughs) but it's all building on a tradition, you know, and that's, you know, so that's, that's a part of it. Um, And then um, we have a lot of fun, you know, I I think we've got a, that, that old Emma Goldman quote, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. You know um, I think some social justice people, we, we're dealing with heavy stuff. And so you can get really serious. But uh, one of my mentors said, if we can't laugh, then the devil's already won. Mm -hmm. So I I think we do have to, there has to be something, you know, really compelling about what we're doing that I I think we're not just naming what's wrong, but we're proclaiming how things can be made right again. And I was last night I was with Brian McLaren on this little virtual thing. And it's one of the things that he, I've always quoted him. He says, we need to protest, but we also need to protestify, you know, yeah. because yeah. we 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 actually need to um, not not just be anti-Trump right now. I mean, but we gotta like imagine what what does um, uh, a country that's driven more by love than by fear? What does it look like? You know, um, a country that's as diverse as the kingdom of God? What does it look like? And. And, um, and that, that's what's, you know, I think coming out of a lot of this anyway is a, is a, a real identity crisis for, you know, white folks in our country. And so, um, yeah, we, we've got to, I think, you know, really build something more beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well, I always end these conversations by asking uh, my guests to share a failure story. And so I was wondering if you could talk about a time that you failed, uh, whether it was uh, several years ago or yesterday, whether it was uh, more serious or lighthearted, uh, professional, personal, whatever.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I, I, the, the one that pops into mind, it's, I, I should probably think a little deeper, but you're kind of put me on the spot, but the first one that pops in my mind, I'll just have to tell you a story because we started our community um, with Tony Campolo, you know, like kind of, he's got this fire for folks that don't know him. He's like a um, Baptist sociologist and evangelist. He like spits when he preaches and he's just like, ah, you know, so he he inspired us with this vision of folks in the UK that, had a double-decker bus that went through the streets and they created this mobile um, hospitality space, right? So folks that were living on the streets could, come on and there was like a little first aid place There was a place where you could get mail because a lot of folks you know don't have a very good way to get mail if they're on the street so we have a p.o box and we could deliver mail we could you know give out coffee so we, we actually bought this double decker bus right like this and we had all these plans for it and we it was in new jersey so we went over and uh and then we we came to find out that like it's you can't have a double-decker bus and it's <laughs> silly, like the bridges are all too low and like you, you literally couldn't move it around you know so like so in, in one sense our whole community started as a mistake you know <laughs> but thankfully we were we were not um it wasn't just about a bus you know I think the bus was uh, we were we were bummed so we ended up having this like little uh baby bus that we had on our our uh, shelf for ages but um but we met this guy who was letting us keep it on his property because we couldn't move it. And um, thankfully, he was sort of apocalyptic, and he, he thought you know there was a flood coming and stuff. And so, um, eventually, we just said, "Would you like to scrap the metal?" And he was like, "Yeah, I'd love it," because he was building an ark. And uh, oh my
0: gosh, really? yeah,
1: heck yeah dude! So we like <laughs> we won. Everybody won. You know, he completed his boat, and and uh, who knows? You know, he may be the one that's like living through this. <laughs> that's I, right. I, don't know. I might might be giving him a call here in a few weeks.
0: <laughs> that's right well Shane Claiborne thank you so much for the time today thank you for your ministry and your witness
1: absolutely dude and I hope to visit your community sometime there in Chicago sounds like I would love it you know I'm dear friends with Darren and other folks that are there so keep it up and love to all your people bless you
0: thanks so much and that's this week's episode thanks again to Shane for giving his time for this conversation to find out more about Shane and his ministry, you can go to his website, ShaneClaiborne.com or to redletterchristians.org. You can also follow him on Twitter at Shane Claiborne. To learn more about my book and the ministry I'm a part of, you can go to ChristianKoon.com, and I hope you'll consider subscribing to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks again for listening.